0: Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, everybody. Before we get started on this week's show, we have a couple of shouts out. Thank you so, so much to Alana and Chris for your donations to our Patreon. I hope you enjoy the newsletter and the monthly bonus episodes that your membership gets you. And listeners, if you want to support us on Patreon at any amount, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. All right, on with the show. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber.
2: And this week, it's not just the two of us. Well, I guess it's never just the two of us because we have all of you here. But this week, we are joined <laughs> by a very special guest for another installment of Neander Time. My favorite time. <laughs> Today, we're joined by Mayoa Adeboyega from
1: UC Davis, where she is a PhD student and researcher whose focus is, in her words the evolutionary mechanisms that lead to a variety of functional morphological traits through human evolutionary history. This means, yes, Amber, lots of Neanderthal time. But Mayowa also studies modern humans, other hominins, and even other other primates through comparative analysis. So Mayowa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yay. First of all, could you describe for us your educational trajectory? You didn't did you start out in anthropology? How did how did that happen for you? And then how did you get to sort of the evolutionary track and especially Neanderthals?
3: See, anthropology is like one of the biggest surprises of my life, to be honest. Like every day. <laughs> I am surprised that this is actually what I do. Um You, you and- wake up and go, oh, Like I'm here. How did I get here? Um, And to really genuinely understand it, it's like a series of weird events that started off like since I was like very little. So because I was born and raised in Lagos, Nigeria, um, I graduated like a little young from secondary school and I was like 15 years old and like classic 15 year old, like I don't want to do any more school than is necessary. So I decided (laughs) not to do my A-levels, which would have taken me to the UK, which, you know, if I'd gone that way, I'd probably not be doing anthropology. And so I told my parents, I was like, I want to go to America. They go to school right after college, you know, high school. So, you know, they don't have to do this two extra years of work. And my mom was like, "Okay, start looking into that. And somehow (laughs) I ended up at Howard University. Um, and it was through there, I did this, um, summer program called the UCHBCU fellowship summer program. And I got to like, you know, do research as an undergrad, you know, the things that you all do to try to pad your resumes and things like that. Right. And yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, like I was still like on this med school track. So even as I did it, I was like, this is going to look great on a med school application. <laughs> they're going to be like, look at her. So be like,
2: oh, sh- she's so well-rounded. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
3: <laughs> but I started loving it like a little too much. <laughs> and like one of the mentors was like, you know, you're kind of good at this. You should, you know, look into doing grad school. And I was like, you know. Like, oh no, grad school. Like, <laughs> good, I know, like, really. But I was like, that was like a good idea a little bit, because this is kind of fun. But like I'm studying like fish. I was studying like the evolution of like fish vertebrae. And I was like, and oh. it's fun. I love it. It was like in Peter Wainwright's lab on campus. And I was like, this is great. But like, how do I explain to my very Nigerian folks that I left med school for fish? Like, this is hmm. going to be a conversation and I don't know how hmm. to have it with them. They're going to be like, you are doing what? You are studying fish. Okay. Why? Uh, you could be saving lives. And so I was like, you know, meet me halfway here. So she was like, well, you seem to like this kind of research, but you could look in the anthropology department and they do sort of similar research like this, but with humans. And I was like, mm, that's a nice middle ground somewhere, you know? Um, And I sort of looked into it and I thought it was like fascinating. And I applied to grad school. That's really it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to save yourself from parental glares. Yeah. You know, and I, It's a lot of pressure. I get it.
3: You know, it is like they they paid a lot of money for me to have an education. Um, and, And also like the idea of like studying humans is just really fascinating to me. Like it's us. Like what are we like, you know?
2: Yeah. And so, um, so now your research is focused on the evolution of the pelvis. Um, And so that's a part of the body that is critical, not only for the evolution of uh, bipedalism, like walking upright. And as I learned from you in a talk that uh, is online that I'll share in the show notes, it's also really important in thermoregulation, which blew my mind. Um, But in females, it's important for childbirth. So do we know what childbirth might've been like for Neanderthals relative to modern humans?
3: Yeah, so like I guess I didn't answer that part of the first question, but um, I I started studying Neanderthals um, because first of all, my advisor loves Neanderthals, and I was like, yay! But <laughs> Neanderthals are like fascinating, right? Because they're right next to us in the human evolutionary tree, so so it's they're like al- almost the best um, other hominins. To compare ourselves to. Like, if we were not this, we might have just gone in this other direction. Like, what does that look like? Right. Yeah. And I just, I'm really sort of fascinated with that sort of, like, meta. Like, what is it to be human kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but I look at the pelvises more particularly because, I mean, the pelvises are also really cool. Um, and, you know, Neanderthal birth and modern human birth are similar in some ways. So they would have been just about as difficult Oh. But the mechanism would have been different. So hmm. Neanderthals have pelvises that are slightly different shape from us, right? But they're similar in size. So there's just about as much space for a baby to go through. But, you know, it's slightly differently shaped.
1: Um, because Neanderthal heads were differently shaped.
3: Exactly. Neanderthal heads were differently shaped. So I think... Um you I think because I do listen to the pod. Uh, <laughs> I think Natalie uh-huh. La- Latassina was you know on like a while ago talking yes. about how you screw a baby through. <laughs> <laughs> there are a
1: series of turns, yes. <laughs> a
3: series of turns. Um well from our analysis, it looks like Neanderthal's had a pelvis that was more wide both at the inlet, mid-plane, and outlet, so wider in that plane. So we don't think that they would have had to necessarily do as many rotations as modern humans sort of have to do. Is that width front to back or side to side? So, yeah. So that's side to side. So they're side to side wider. And they're much more side to side wider than even we are. And they're Mm -hmm. side to side wider in all the dimensions. So both at the top, both at the middle and both at the bottom. And so we think like maybe they would have only had to do that one rotation that gets, you know, the head through and then the shoulders through, but only at one time. So not having to do it twice like modern humans like us, like we have to do.
1: So it's not necessarily easier for the Neanderthal.
2: Do you think that this still indicates that births probably would have been assisted? Yeah, I want to know about that. Like, I want to know how this can like intersect with sort of what we might be able to guess about sort of social so- yeah like right.
3: social groupings like is I think was it something like that? I think that they would still have had to be assisted. I mean those Neanderthal like so, um, they've been able to do some reconstructive study um study and reconstruction on um like a little um neonate like a small baby Neanderthal that was sort of found and yeah. it mm-hmm. looks like they would still have had to be assisted. I mean it's still a pretty tight fit. They're The space given (laughs) at the birth canal is not enough for that skull.
2: I'm doing that hand gesture again. (laughs) I don't like it. I know I can't even see it and I don't like it. Push that baby through. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Still messy.
3: Still messy. Well, let's
1: get let's get down to the individual level. So you are working with a specimen that was found. Well, you're working with models of a specimen (laughs) found uh, in Israel uh, known as Kibara 2, because it was found at the site of Kibara. So can you tell us a little bit about that specimen? And what parts do you have? What's some of that individual's story?
3: Sure. Kibara, my friend. Um, Kibara 2 <laughs> is a specimen that is now very near and dear to my heart like for the rest of my life. Um, Kibara whether you like 2, it or not. Whether I like it or not. It's a 60,000-year-old Neanderthal, so it's a mid-body male skeleton. So what I mean by that is we don't have the skull. All we have is like the mandible and there's not really much below the torso. So there's like part of a proximal femur. So like the first part of a femur, the thigh, the the top of the thigh, the top of the thigh. Right. And there's not much else. So it's really just sort of this mid body torso, you know, skeleton. Um, But it's pretty cool because for what we have, we have a lot of it. So we have like most of the ribs. We have the entire spinal column. We have the pelvis. We have at least a good chunk of the pelvis. Doesn't missing pieces, but we have some of that. I should also mention that Kabaratu has a nickname that I like using, Moshi. Yes. <laughs> Moshi. Uh, so Moshi.
1: Oh, like Moshe, like
3: like Moses. Yes. Moshe. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I I really like the fact that like I love when we decide to give like names. <laughs> To just
1: you ever just walk in and go,
3: hey, Mo? Yeah, you know, hey, Mo, what's up? So it was <laughs> discovered in the 80s um, in, like you said, in Israel, in uh, Kabara Cave. That's where it gets the other name. Kabara right. Cave in Mount Carmel, Israel. And Mount Carmel is this like mountain range in northern Israel, which is a rich archaeological site. There's evidence of both like Neanderthal and modern human habitation, but at different times. So we don't think they really overlap. We don't know if they met. There's no evidence of that yet, but we know that mm-hmm. they lived in this sort of uh, mountain range, you know, alternately, basically, through time. And the another special thing about that is, like, we've mentioned this <laughs> a couple of times, it is from Israel. And most people sort of associate Neanderthals mm-hmm. from, you know, sort of Europe, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where most of the type specimens come from. But we, we do have a couple of Neanderthals from the Levant, you know, from Western Asia. But... They're slightly different. Um not, yeah. you know, they're they're, they're slightly more grass out. So they're they they do not have as, you know, how do we call it? The as um They're not as chonky. Yeah, <laughs> not as chonky. Chonky is the five term I'm looking for here.
1: Not as chonky. <laughs> it the, well the thing is, so um the environment that Neanderthals were living in in Europe, they had to be very cold adapted, so they were sort of very squat, not squat, but they were um, compact and robust and muscular. The environment of the Levant is a Mediterranean one that's much more sort of abundant in resources, the climate's more temperate. Exactly. And so the that those evolutionary traits that have to do with cold adaptation aren't really as present right. in Neanderthal specimens that we see from there.
2: yeah. yeah. They're, they're chill
1: Neanderthals.
2: Person who doesn't know anything. Question. Um, oh, I no, this is you know this, lots this, of things. And I know lots of things, but I don't know. I don't know lots of things about Neanderthal population. So this is. I'm the audience surrogate here. I, ah. I play a very important rhetorical role. Um, so, <laughs> what <laughs> are the uh, cold adaptive strategies? Would those have evolved in response to the cold, or would they have kind of fallen away? Do, are well, these just like do the people just like Neanderthals just going in two different directions, or is there sort of one is the baseline and the other is a response?
3: So I, I think we believe that the Western Asian Neanderthals actually like are like came from the European Neanderthals, so migrated okay. sort of mm-hmm. westward in a sense. Okay. So they already had those features in the sort of ancestral population, and they're just a bit more relaxed since they're not necessarily <laughs> being selected for in uh, those okay. other locations.
2: So so other qualities can sort of survive like, right. and, and to a point where they can pass on their their genetic material. Exactly. They're just like getting too cold when they're babies. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay, thank you.
3: <laughs> so, yes. um, and um, one other special thing about Kabara is that because it's like relatively complete, right? Because most fossils you only find bits and pieces. It's been used in a lot of studies about, you know, Neanderthals to try to explain something about Neanderthals it's used in studies about childbirth even though I should mention it is a male it is used in studies about you know understanding whether Neanderthals could have had speech or not because it has a hyoid bone in, hyoid you know. yeah um, it's used to study, you know, the vertebral column is complete. So it's used to understand like locomotion and posture. And we have the rib cages. So we can think about sizes of like soft tissue and organs, like your lungs, you know, how they fit into those rib cages. And right. so it's been used for a lot of these studies. So it's a pretty important specimen.
1: Is that a good thing, do you think? Because when you use a single individual to explain all of these things, you have to think about how representative of the whole population is this individual. And right. like I'm not against the idea of learning lots and lots about Neanderthals. But what I hesitate at is doing that with a single, you know, that's like choosing a single well-known human being. Let's uh, yeah. just say like Keanu Reeves <laughs> to answer questions about all of human physiology. And childbirth, right? And frankly, exactly. I'm not sure his pelvis can handle it.
3: You're right about <laughs> This is like a canary. To understand childbirth situation, I mean, there are <laughs> <a few> other, <laughs> there are a few other the Neanderthals out there that I use for, you know, additionally. But the thing about fossils, as you all know, or at least both of you know, you know, they're pretty rare, and so it's yes. I think of it as you know, we're using them to understand as much as we can, like pending further investigation. Um, you know, well pending, answered <laughs> pending other information this is what we can at least surmise about them and that's at least how i think about my research with Kabara. Cool.
2: yeah um so let's talk about your research specifically because you know in sort of my great wisdom that i have from watching one talk that you've given um like Do you see sort of like, what do you actually use? Because I still imagine you just sort of like standing in front of this like glass wall that's like screens and like swiping things with your hands and being like, enhance. Zoom, enhance, enlarge. And like spinning them with your fingers. Like, so what do you do? How do you do this? Because we've got, you know, one, this, this one guy, we got Moshe hanging out.
3: Yeah.
2: As a fossil. And, and how... How have you been able to kind of engage with this one specimen to do Uh, such great work? Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today.
3: Um, what, how do I do what I do? Um, yeah. Well, I kind of, this is the part that actually really does excite me because I am such a nerd sometimes. Um, yes. I. So I work with Kibara through CT scans. So the weird thing is I've actually never actually touched the actual fossil. So um, plan to hopefully in the future near future
1: to but we checked we checked and kabara's closed you know
3: exactly if you go
1: to google maps and you say take me to kabara cave it's just like closed
2: well, it's just permanently closed like it's like a cafe that shut down due to covid <laughs>
3: Right. So what I do is I have CT scans. So CT scans are these, you know, images that are taken slice by slice, you know, cross sectionally of an, you know, a 3D object, right? Like a person, a bone, a cactus, whatever. Um, And I use those CT scans in a program called Avizo. So Avizo is a 3D visualization and analysis software. It basically lets you play around with Kibara in 3D form. Um, It even lets you do this cool thing where you can um, actually kind of put on those like red and blue 3D glasses and sort of (laughs) see it merge from your screen. Um,
2: It like it it like comes at you like a T-Rex.
3: Yeah, basically. (laughs) It's kind of fun. There's a little bit of like spinning, you know, so you're not quite wrong. Um, But what I do is so at least with Kibara, the work that I've done is to reconstruct the pelvis now. If anyone looks up a picture of kubara, you're going to wonder why I'm doing that, because it seems to kind of be held together. So kubara is in fragments, but because it was been buried in the ground for so long, it's held together by, you know, like sediment that just sort of like, you know, holding it together. But it has sort of been noted that there are a few of those pieces that are not sitting in anatomical position, So they're kind of shifted. So it's kind of like if you have this puzzle and all the pieces aren't fitting together properly, but they've kind of just solidified that way. So what I do is, you know, go through and I should say tediously, slice by slice, um, and, you know, select each fragment out. So what that looks like is I end up separating out the actual fragments and leaving behind the sediment. And so I create new images with that. Digitally. This is all digital. digital. You're you're this not is all you're not digital. Yeah. No, no just, I'm not <laughs> hacking away at Kribar.
2: Just for us to sort of envision this, um, when you say fragment, what size are these fragments? Are these like, like flakes, bone?
3: pea? Oh, yeah. Some of the fragments are as tiny as like a piece of sand, like a, just a little tiny piece of sand you'd find at the beach, mm. and some of them are as chunky as like your hand, like your hand. So. Oh. Like the ileum is largely, and I should describe anatomical words. The ilium, so the top part of your pelvis, right, is the part pretty, where you put your hands if you're mad at somebody.
2: Yeah, and the, and the that, part that, right. like, some people for some people it like pokes out. Mm-hmm, like, exactly. Like, okay. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, that part is, you know, pretty held together. It's not really fragmentary, so it's just a big chunk. Everything below that is in pieces. So there are about 39 fragments oh, no. on just. One of the bones, just like the right hip bones, has 39 individual fragments. Woof. Ew. <laughs> and so it <laughs> took about a year to segment all those out. So, to individually go, so you, what I would do is I would go, you know, I'd be looking at it from one slice and I'd just like select one fragment, right, with the tools of a viso, like paint it in, or if it can sort of like just clip it, whatever I use. And then I'd have to do the next slice and do that fragment until I'm done with that single fragment, and then I start again from the top, look for another fragment, and go all the way through and select it. So it's just a lot of looking and clicking. Lots of looking and clicking and yelling involved sometimes too. And I've, and so- I've heard that, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so the in the CT in the image the the CT image, um, it, it's possible to see. Is, is sediment still there like from yeah. the scan that was taken so you're yeah. you're saying like that is sediment that is bone right. that is sediment that is bone and so when you are done with this what you have are sort of all bone no
3: sediment exactly when you can bones. like control. just like clean the bones and now i have like individual like chunks that okay. can now be also moved in the 3d space separately so that's the cool part, actually, is that those individual pieces I can now individually like turn them around, rotate them, move them left, move them right. And so, and Amber, this
1: is happening off. on a computer screen. This is not <laughs> floating <laughs> I, above my myo's head in a holographic
3: projection. I, I, know, wanna, that's yeah, I, to be I know. In
2: my minority report, where you're like wish. dragging them with your
3: finger. And, I wish. I hope oh. that one day we can do that because that would make us. That would be amazing. Tough. Right. strap
1: on an oculus rift and just go <laughs> go to town
3: really i don't think the technology is that far away i think we can get the done. yes yes <laughs> but it's kind of like a like a 3d jigsaw puzzle and i don't okay. even know if they make those but yeah they it's do. Kind of they, like, do. Oh, they do they cool.
2: do pretty soon there will be one of the after you, there will be the one of the, the kibara pelvis.
3: Exactly. <laughs> of course. So another thing I should mention about Kabara and, and my reconstruction work is that if you look at kibara, the right hip bone is pretty complete-ish. Like it has most of what is there. The sacrum, which is like, you know, the part that holds the right and the left together. Is in the back. In the back, right. In the back is kind of complete. It's a bit more distorted on the left side. You can tell it's like sort of been crushed and bended because remember, it's been sitting in the ground for 60,000 years. And then the left side is like really kind of damaged. So to do this reconstruction, what I've actually done is mirror the right reconstructed side like to the left. So you can do this in 3D space quite easily. I shouldn't say that because of how long it took. So yes, you can do this kind of um, easily in reconstruction, like in virtual space. And so what I just did is like had this, you know, finish reconstructing the left, the right side, finish reconstruction, the sacrum, and then cutting the sacrum in half, you know, just taking out the left half and then mirroring the right side to the other side and then mirroring the right hip bone to the left. So I have this sort of perfectly symmetrical reconstruction, if you can imagine.
2: Yeah. 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 I don't have
1: to imagine. I have seen it. <laughs>
2: yes, you have. I'm imagining it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, oh, that's very cool. So it's, that's amazing. Like how much, like it, I know that this happens and I know that this is part of research, but like, I really think like it cannot be understated that you have done all of this work, having never touched the fossil that you study. Right. And, and then also you, you mentioned this in, in your talk that, you know, this is something that can be, um, but it's been, it's been 3d printed. Right. Like, and so that's something that other people who want to study the uh, the uh, this specimen or the Neanderthal like pelvis, they could, in, in theory. I don't know if it, it, anyone's done this, but like they can sort of get that file and 3D print it themselves. Exactly. And it like really like opens up what would be just like if you can get to Leipzig mm-hmm. and like get permission. And sort of everything goes into place. Then maybe you'll get to study it. Like now this like opens it up to people who are, you know, strapped for money, strapped for connections. Yeah, yeah, that this is something that that makes uh, this kind of research so much more accessible. So I just wanted to make sure. pelvis. access, (laughs) pelvis. Ah, I'm doing the motion. Um, (laughs) But I just, I want to make sure that like our listeners, like it's not lost on our listeners, that like this is like incredible. And this is a huge, um, if nothing else, this is a great sort of proof of concept of democratizing research and making research and doing research more accessible to people. So so like Not the- only is it cool, but also it's really, really important.
3: See, thanks. Um, um, the paper is in review right now, so it's really cool. Uh-huh. We will. We have attached all the, you know, the reconstruction and all the files with it, so that people can, again, have access to it and you know print it out in their with their own 3D printers if they have access to one. And that really allows that information to be available and accessible to a lot more people.
1: So yeah, the 3D printer has really been kind of a boon for for archaeologists in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's not perfect, but, but you know, it's, yeah, just, it's, it's just, very cool. It, yeah. Um, well, let's kind of scoot over to a slightly different line of questioning. So um, as you mentioned up top, um, you are originally from Nigeria, and I imagine that you must have noticed that at least in American universities, black researchers are in a significant minority in archaeology in general but also in paleo paleoanthropology
3: so can you speak to that a little bit yeah um i think it's like impossible to sort of understand why that is without sort of looking at sort of racism in institutions of higher learning and in general and in anthropology specifically so to a lot of i guess black indigenous people of color like the racist effects that anthropology had are still very real and present If we are to be honest, biological anthropology kind of codified like race and legitimized racism. And so, to a lot of people, there's a bit of a resistance in wanting to have sort of anything to do with it. Now, you know, we can say that like we've changed the way, obviously, we study race, we've changed the way we study people. And I don't really know any anthropologists that, that still believe in any of those like previous theories, but you know, the effects are still there. And I think it's important to understand that in the way we sort of engage with at least students at the undergrad level and how they perceive the field and the public in general. Um, I also think that we've not done a lot of like, good PR. I think we're very terrible at doing our own PR and we haven't done a lot to change people's perceptives, you know, perspectives in the public. You know, like a lot of the things people still think of as anthropologists is that image of this sort of Man from like maybe the 1800s, like digging with like one pickaxe and then finding something in Eureka, like his name is now on the wall. You know, we don't really talk about or we don't really present anthropologists in the way we do it now, the kind of diversity of study and the diversity of people that are involved with it now, which I think would actually interest people a lot more. Um, I'd also say that like there is a lot of work that is done by Black anthropologists and other anthropologists of color to sort of, you know, to recruit and to sort of bring more Black anthropologists into the field. And I don't think that work is compensated or valued as much. So, you know, there's a lot of us who do a lot of sort service, we do a lot of outreach, and it's not really valued. So when I, one way I can think of that is when you're thinking about going up for tenure, you know, at a university, like outreach isn't something that is like this, you know, one of the pillars that they look at, even though I think it's really, really important, right? It's important that we don't just keep our work in the ivory tower, so to speak. That that work goes out to the people, because what's the point of finding out something and then keeping it to like the, you know, the couple hundred people that can sort of sit down and read a scientific paper? I mean, most people are not doing that. Right. But a lot of what we do affects how human beings see themselves. Right. Like if we talk about the differences and the similarities between people, it can affect how we see ourselves, which right now is a very important concept that, you know, we're all grappling with. And I think we have this responsibility because of the kind of work we do, but we don't always see ourselves in that public space. And I think for too long, anthropologists have seen themselves, you know, as these sort of, and not just anthropologists, I should say like most scientists have seen themselves in this very, you know, on a, you know, hidden behind a wall, doing sort of research in their lab and then publishing and then going home and, you know, patting themselves on the back. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. Thank you. In, especially in light of the, the like the, the ongoing kind of phenomenon that's happening on Twitter of, of capturing the black and the ivory stories mm-hmm. and sort of this, this sort of kind of push into the forefront and then kind of in front of like predominantly white colleagues eyes. Um, and so sort of capturing the experience or the ch- challenges or sort of the inherent challenges that you just spoke to and sort of, historical, like historically, like kind of codified issues of, of anthropologies. Um, what would you say to, to, um, young students, like black students that are thinking about pursuing a career in this field, either anthropology sort of writ large or sort of in your subfield?
3: Um, what would I tell them? Well, I think, first of all, I would, tell the field first of all to stop centering that gaze right like that particular perspective and how do we do that i think it's hard you come with the perspective that you come with it, it is it's sort of developed throughout your life and for too long we've sort of centered one sort of image. And you think about all the anthropologists we talk about in classes and things they're like specific kinds of people. They're older, white, male, European, like there's a specific look. And I would tell um, black students that their perspective is needed, that we can't just sort of keep looking at this field from this very singular point of view. Like we need your perspective, like this space, this, you know, academic space is just as much yours as it is anyone else's. And, you know, no one has a right to sort of push you out of it. No, you, you come into it. If you want to, you stay out of it if you don't want to, but it is just as much your space. That's, that's the advice I would give because like, it's, we do need them. It's not even sort of like, we're doing ourselves a favor by, you know, making the field more diverse and inclusive. We need those perspectives to move our field forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So obviously communication of, research science communication in general is extremely Im- important to you you can sort of hear in your voice how how passionate you are about that and I happen to know that you've participated in the UC Davis grad
2: slam mm-hmm. um, which, is, which is what what is that Ooh, grad slam so I read it as grand slam and I was like like at I like a Denny's br- <laughs> Denny's <laughs> breakfast <laughs> I it was like, about like pancakes and I'm like this sounds fun but what is grad slam I'm sorry yeah. to completely like steamroll
3: the question, fine. but sub question. What is it? Well, grad slam. <laughs> grad slam is this really weird competition uh, <laughs> that is had throughout the UCs, and it's basically a competition where you're supposed to describe your research to a sort of, you know, public to a public that is outside of your field in three minutes.
1: Like a poetry slam, basically. But research.
3: Yes, basically. So you have three minutes. You can use, I think, three slides, and you have to basically explain to people what are you doing in three minutes.
1: Wow. Yeah, and you did. You did extremely well at the UC Davis. I would like. Grad Is It's you know, like
2: a competition.
3: Oh okay. yes. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. There's like there's stages to this. There's competition. Oh there's trophies at the end. You're looking, or I guess, listening to the People's Choice Award winner of Grad Slam. Oh.
1: Oh Oh, oh, maybe I'll stick it. I'm gonna I'm gonna (laughs) stick in a little like applause sting effect.
3: (laughs) I have the little trophy sitting on my desk right now.
1: (laughs) Oh, well you're our choice. Uh, So my actual question, but that was a very good sub question, Amber. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) So Maya, what's what's your favorite part about teaching people, people of any sort, about anthropology and what's your style? Like how do you
3: how do you teach? Mm, my favorite part I think like anthropology helps us like examine why we are the way we are and I think people are curious about that so I love those things that you know give people that aha moment it's like oh this is why we do this like when I explain I love explaining to people like why we walk upright right because you know people don't really think about it you just amble about on your two legs to work and then you explain to them like that's a real thing that like my, yeah, that's not. a weird like was, thing
1: that our species chose to do
3: exactly like it's a very weird thing like we don't think about it or like why our heads are the size they are like we have pretty big brains for our body size and like we don't think about things like that and i love bringing those things to light and people so that people look at themselves a little bit more like see more of themselves than they usually like don't And, you know, I love that because like our field is not necessarily um, going to like, you know, cure disease or put a man in the moon. But I love the fact that we can really show people who they are, why they are the way they are. We can really like allow people to be more introspective about, you know, our place in this world and this planet. That's my favorite thing. And as for my style, I am an incurably playful person. I don't know how to take (laughs) me seriously. So I just always go straight for the laughs. Like, I want people to see science as fun, but also like real. When I'm teaching students, I don't shy away from telling them like how stressed I am that, you know, a visa has crashed two times today. And like, you know, my students usually get a laugh out of it. But to them, it also lets them know that like this thing I'm doing is real. It's not this rarefied, you know, space that they can't go to because they're not smart enough, you know it's like, yeah, everyone's doing it. You can do it too. It's fun. It's weird. It's tedious. It's kind of crazy. I'm kind of crazy. If you think you're kind of weird, then you can kind of be here. Cause like you'd be amongst you, you'd have company.
0: Hey, fans of archeology, span head over to artpodnet.com shop and click the link to our T public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.archpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timular is an app, and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash timular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash timular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping.
1: That's one of the great things, I think, about what we what we try to do in this podcast, at least, is just to be human about what people study and just be like, wow, this person does this thing or this person tried to do this thing and it really didn't work. But
3: they tried again. I, I love talking about the parts when it doesn't work. I think we hide that too much in the world. And it's kind of like we give this Instagram filter to everything. Where it's like, oh, like I did the study, came out with this great result, and I'm like, wow, that person is so brilliant. And we don't talk about like the ten thousand times it did not work yeah. before they finally did get it to work, and like the amount of like stress, and the you know, the the funny things that happened along the way. We don't really sort of share those parts, and I, I think it kind of makes people think that they can't do it if they don't think that they are as perfect as the final result.
2: Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point. And I think that that's something that um, I've seen a little bit of discussion about kind of in the public sphere lately uh, about how uh, people don't have either like a knowledge of or awareness of or perhaps an appreciation for the fact fact that um like science and scientific research is kind of clunky (laughs) it's kind of clunky and so like i've I've seen kind of um think pieces and articles and stuff around uh specifically with the um the like the pandemic and looking at medical research Mm -hmm. and how like the way like the way like news consumers in in America have sort of been trained is to think that like ah research done sort of research released published done we know a thing let's move forward but it's actually much more fluid much more clunky and it's and it's it's a process it's not it's not something that just happens right and and, and that's something that yeah that I think thanks for pointing that out for us again because it's something yeah. that and you, you hear scientists say it like the beauty of science is that it's a process and the failure but like yeah sure like let like tell me about it when you like actually include that in your research like exactly. what you publish like that's all well and good but you still have like a Nobel Prize.
3: <laughs> like exactly. And I think we, and I think we've done the public a disservice because again like looking at just the way people are interacting with the research about um, COVID it's COVID-19, It's you can get that people don't realize that, like, sometimes we get it wrong and then we get it right. And then sometimes we do something and then new information comes in and it changes everything. And I think because, you know, science has been presented as eureka moments, like just a series of eurekas, people are struggling to understand why the scientists said one thing today and then it's something different tomorrow.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that it's not even a matter of being wrong, it's just being more complete knowledge.
1: Yeah, right. no, science is self-correcting by by its nature. Right. Um, it's just the more the more we are able to understand, the more we can refine our knowledge. So it's not necessarily, yeah, Amber, like you said, it's not necessarily right. that scientists were just wrong, it's that the knowledge wasn't there yet. Right, exactly.
2: Talking about being introspective here, um uh, let's get a, a little a little introspective and think about human nature. Yeah. I want your hot takes. This is of course, like a question that I would ask, (laughs) um, especially since, um, Anna sent me an article this week that I am all about. Um, and it's, it's a, it's published in new black friars and it's a theological article, Mm -hmm. uh, with the title, did Christ die for Neanderthals? And it is exactly the sort of thing that I like thinking about. Um, that's and, why I sent it to you. Yeah, and I recommend so I, I don't have
1: to think about it. No, I
2: recommend that I, rec- I you know, I recommend folks read it, um, irrespective of any kind of relationship with faith that they may or may not have, because it's really interesting to see something through that lens. Right. And um and talking about how um uh, c- implying that, quote, when the word became flesh, the word became partly Neanderthal, end quote. Right. So right. that's something that <laughs> I really interesting to me and so from to you were Uh, neanderthals human
3: Ooh, i i love that and i want to read that article i'm gonna read it because i should mention (laughs) i am the daughter of two like a pastor and a deaconess i should say yeah that's actually a fascinating read that my parents will love um i i think neanderthals are human i think I don't even sort of. I think meowthles I, are human. And to me, they're human. They're human. They're human. Um, and like that's beyond like the biological species concept. The whole like you know we can interbreed with them and thus like they're human. I just like you know if you look at all the evidence of you know who they were and what they were able to do, the things they created. I just can't imagine that you know they, you know. To, I can't imagine seeing them as anything else but just human. Just not in the way that. I am maybe human. Right. Mm -hmm. Like just I think because we're one of those species that doesn't really have sister species that are extant, that are sort of alive with us. It's hard. I think that's why it's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. Because when we think of like, you know, different, I mean, dogs are not necessarily different species, but when we think about different types of dogs, we don't see like a terrier and then see a bulldog and be like, those two are not dogs. We just sort of associate them like, yeah, Dog, dog, different, but dog. Um, So we even
2: do that with like, to continue the dog metaphor, we do that with like dogs and foxes and, you know, like like all the cute animal videos on YouTube. (laughs) It's like, oh, oh, look at this fox. It's getting tummy rubs like that sort of.
3: Yeah. So I I think if they were, if they had managed to survive till this present day, they would be human and we would have maybe built a different society, but it would be a society that maybe included all of us, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just just not having them existing on the landscape now. I think, and and throughout all of human history that's been sort of recorded, that makes it sort of difficult for people to conceptualize a slightly different type of human yeah. existing right. at the same you know within our population. Um, but you know, if you go back maybe two million years or so, there were multiple populations of australopiths, different species. If you zoom forward a little bit, you know, there were multiple members of the genus Homo kicking around. Right. At the same time, it's something that has occurred throughout human evolution. It just isn't occurring now. And I think that's where people's brains kind of break, trying to think about whether Neanderthals were human. It's harder to consider them human when we don't have enough of an analog for sort of a living population
3: that's as complex as ours. Right. And I mean, let's be honest, like at least those humans that met them thought they were human enough, you know? Yeah, they were like, hey, yeah. They were like, hey, you look, you're kind of cute. So, you know, if they they saw it, then I'm pretty sure it was there. Yeah.
2: (laughs) That is a very good point. Yeah, but uh, we'll, yeah. I'll make sure that Anna sends you that article, too, since I can't figure out how to get things out of text messages. (laughs) Yeah, I got to
1: I got to find it. It was it's on JSTOR. Yeah, we'll make sure to pass that along so you can read it to your parents. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so for our final two questions, we have our set of questions that we ask all of our special guests on the show. And it's kind of fun to see the diversity of answers that we get. So first one, what is the best thing about anthropology? Mm,
3: the best thing. The best. The best of the best. I think the best thing about anthropology is in its broadness. I, I love the fact that someone who like looks at music and someone who sequences DNA like can both find a place under this umbrella. I like the fact that like um, you can really be studying, you can be interested in anything and find a way to connect it to anthropology and find a place that like inside of anthropology. And I love that. I, I think like it means that we do some really cool research. I think it means that we can see the world in such a different way as anthropologists, because even though I'm a biological anthropologist, like when I think about, you know, the bones, I'm thinking about how it affected like their society, right? I'm thinking about how it affected the structure of their community. I'm thinking about, you know, did this mean that they cared for each other? Did this mean like we asked like we talked about earlier, like did they have help with childbirth? Right. Those are the kinds of yeah. questions I get to sort of look at. And I love the fact that I can be interested in one thing, but have this sort of, you know, in to the other parts of humanity.
2: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So that's but so yeah, that is that's sort of that's one of my favorite things about it. It's just that it's it's hard to find something that doesn't connect to anthropology. Right. Yeah. Um and then our last question. Um so if you could be a fly on the wall for any moment in human history, human evolutionary history, or the history of anthropology as a di- discipline, what would you choose?
3: See, ooh, this is going to be hard cuz <laughs> I was thinking about like play, like in human history and then in like the discipline and I couldn't, like, decide. Let me see.
2: Well, you um, think of two answers. Ooh, ooh. We're not, we aren't going to cap you at one. Don't
3: worry. <laughs> okay. So if I, if I was to pick a point in, like, human evolutionary history, I would have, I would love to see, like, the first Neanderthal yeah, modern human meetup. I just want to know, like, what that would have been like, would have recognized each other as human would they have recognized each other as like the same thing instantly would they have you know thought of them as a different like group like I just I'm actually genuinely curious about that because I think like we talked about just now it's really weird to think of another kind of human yeah and I would have loved to see that but if I was to pick as an discipline because I am I love mess uh, I wanted to I just want to see how the piltdown hoax went down I want to know like uh, all the uh, involved, I just want to know what they were thinking when they were sort of creating this. Like what the long also, game was. Yeah, I just like I can they, tell you what.
1: The, uh, I I so desperately want to be part of the Royal Society. Please,
3: like, please he, let me was, in, chaps. Was he consciously like lying, or was he just so far gone that he didn't realize uh, that he had uh, like fallen? He in,
1: had a cabinet full of fakes. <sighs> <laughs> he had he in his huge collection of uh, anthropological and archaeological curiosities i think it was something like 40% of them at least were fakes but,
2: but just, was it but was it probably like made by him how the, the you know folks who believe in like various like cryptids and things like they will fake things in pursuit of the truth that right. like they can they, is they a can weird Slippery. No, it's yeah, it's it's like a, it's part of a delusion where they're just like, I believe it and I need you to believe it. If I could just convince you, even if it's convincing you with a fake thing, I can get you on board for the real thing. Right. And so like, I, I want to yeah. know if
3: he was like, this is a fake and I'm going to like mess with them. Or like, yeah. if it was like, okay, I know it doesn't, but if I just add this a little bit, maybe people will take it more seriously and maybe they'll go look for more. Like maybe it'll give people hope. Like I want to know how... Like, how yeah. diabolical the plan was, you know? Like, right. <laughs> was
2: like yeah, it was it like ill advised or was <laughs> it evil? Yeah, it was <laughs> evil.
3: It's like, I mean, that was a scam. Like, that is like a scammer. And I just want to know, I'm curious. I like Mess. You see? I'm, <laughs> I'm too playful for this.
1: <laughs> no, that whole story is, is in, in both parts, uh, infuriating and fun. Like, right. it's fun to think of. Like, ah, uh, hoax, but also it really set us back.
3: Right, exactly. And I just like want to know like, were y'all just like scamming? Like, dang, man. Like, that's harsh. <laughs> on that note, I guess.
1: <laughs> Bio, I thank you so much for joining us on the show. If people want to find you, like, not your street address, but <laughs> on the interwebs, where can they do that?
3: Ooh, you can find me on Twitter. I- I am I am always on Twitter. You can catch me there at any hour of the day at Paleo Myowa. So P-A-L-E-O-M-A-Y-O-W-A on Twitter.
2: You get a lot of like people that are like interested in like the carnivorous diet following you, thinking that you're like a <laughs> paleo diet influencer. Yeah,
3: a few people, a few people, <laughs> but I disabuse them of the notion very quickly. Where are all your photos
1: of steak? <laughs>
3: uh. Uh, sorry. Uh
1: just show them a photo of a pan of rice just like
2: ah i have have bone are you interested in bone as yeah as long as you can make some broth out of it
1: listen Uh, neanderthal Ah. broth
3: (laughs)
2: that's gross anna but thank you so
3: much Maya. this (laughs) has been so fun this has been fun for me too thank you so much
0: Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archeological education and outreach.